this morning, Paul thankfully gives us some characteristics of spiritual maturity. Notice with me these three words again. First, a unified knowledge. Secondly, spiritual manliness. Thirdly, Christ-likeness. These are the marks of a spiritually mature person. Let's look at them very briefly this morning. Uh, Notice there first in verse 13, he says, until we all attain to what? The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, when Paul uses the word and there, he's joining two ideas. Uh, These are not two separate goals, but one in the same goal. Uh, They are flip sides of the same coin. Unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Both of them are objective. This isn't about how much faith we have, but rather a unity in the gospel. A unified mind. We all understand the same thing about the gospel. So this morning, if if we're members of this church and all Christians, we have a, a unified understanding. This is why when you become members of our church, we we ask you in the membership interview process, what is the gospel? You see, if you were to tell us something other than what we believe the Bible teaches is the gospel, we would say, well, friend, you are mistaken about what it means to follow Jesus. You imagine how confusing it would be every Lord's Day if we gathered and we had people who believed different ways uh, to heaven, how messed up that would be, how confusing Why would we, you know, they would just be, we would be a mess. And so Paul says that a mature Christian is one who understands the gospel. Who knows the gospel well. In other words, their mind has been informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul here is aiming not at a unified heart, but a unified mind. You see, that's what the world does. The world unifies around the heart. Jesus unifies around the mind. Let me illustrate what I mean. It is easy to get a lot of different groups of people to become emotionally invested in something. That is why those commercials tug at the heart, not the head. They are getting you to buy products emotively, right? That'll make you feel better about yourself. You'll be happy, right, if you, if you eat that or buy that, right? All kinds of people are watching that. Very different than you watch that, and they're all taken into that. It's emotive. It's not of the head. That's why we, we spin the way we spin, right? We go to the store, and we're emotional buyers, right? We don't think, like, I don't need to buy that. But what Paul here in the context of this verse is aiming at a mind that is renewed. Notice here, notice what I mean uh, further down from this text in Ephesians 4. In verse 23, notice what Paul writes. That Christians are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Emotions, brothers and sisters, are fickle. And so what we aim at then is transformed lives by transformed minds. Anything else is just behavior modification, right? If we're transforming people's minds, then we're transforming their lives. 
And so when we unite together, we are uniting around a common gospel. That's what unifies us. A common belief. Friends, this is why, if you've ever wondered why we read the Apostles' Creed, for example. Or the Nicene Creed. I mean, let's be honest. How often throughout your week are you publicly reading documents that were written in the 3rd century? Not often, right? You're not reading much outside the 21st century. Why? Is it because we just want to be old and cantankerous and weird? No, because it displays our unity of mind. We all affirm what we're reading. I mean, frankly, we wouldn't be reading it out loud, I hope, if we didn't affirm what we were saying. More than that, we're unifying ourselves with Christians beyond ourselves. We are saying that we're not the first folks on the block to believe these things. No, there is a history of three of 2,000 years of Christians who affirm these things. And so that's why we regularly read these doctrinal statements in our services with this aim in mind. And so as Christians, we have this unified understanding of the gospel. We believe that God created humanity. That because God created us, we are accountable to him. We believe that God is good and created us good and righteous and holy. But because of our, our own sin, we rebel against God and we live life's Life the way we want to live it. That man by nature is a sinner. We are honest about ourselves. For the scripture is honest with us. But the hope that we have. Is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ came. The son of God. Fully man and fully God. He came and died the death we deserve. Living the life we should have. In perfect obedience. He went to the cross to die for our sins in our place. When Jesus is on the cross, he's on the cross, not because of his sin, but because of your sin and my sin. And our hope is in the fact that Jesus isn't in some tomb in Jerusalem this morning, but that he ascended, he rose from the dead and he ascended on high and that he reigns and that he will come again. But that isn't just the gospel, brothers and sisters. Because if we don't respond to that message, if we don't turn from living life our own way and turn from our sin and trust in Jesus alone for salvation, we will not be saved. So do not misunderstand what I mean this morning by a unified mind. You might affirm everything I just said, but if you are not living a life of repentance and faith, you have no hope of eternal life. You may be able to come up here and quote scripture in verse. You may be able to recite the gospel in every dot and iota. But if you have not turned to trust Jesus alone and forsaken yourself, you will not be saved. But as Christians, we are unified in the gospel. We are unified in our understanding of the knowledge of the Son of God. We are all in agreement this morning that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We're of all like mind that Jesus is alive today, that he reigns victorious over heaven and earth. We're all clear about who the Son is. This is, of course, what what separates us from, 
from other groups that try to, you know, hang out with us. The Mormons, for example, or the Jehovah Witness. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be of unified mind among them. For they do not have a unified understanding of the Son of God. And so one of the characteristics, as we see, is a unified knowledge. A growing church is a church that is regularly having its minds transformed by the gospel and the word of Christ. Notice here the second characteristic. To mature manhood. Now, I know, ladies, you're going to be discouraged by this. um, Because you think, I'm a lady, I don't want to be a man. But Paul's point remains the same, right? To mature manhood, spiritual manliness. Paul doesn't use the general term that he could have mankind or humankind. He doesn't do that here. He uses an intentional word that means man. A man's man. A manly man. But he doesn't mean, right, a a man who is uh, manly, right, Uh, externally. No. He's after the characteristics, right, of a of manliness, someone who's stable, someone who's steadfast, someone who is immovable, someone who isn't running after all the the different things in the world. A, A man is one who has eyes focused that aren't roaming around. Of course, Paul here is contrasting, right? The man with the child in verse 14. Spiritual manliness. The image is clear. A spiritual manhood is one who is stable, who knows what they believe, who can't just be easily blown away. Brother, sister, could you be described as that? Someone who's spiritually mature in your faith, who knows what you believe and is willing to stand on what you believe? Now, I don't know, I don't mean about political matters, I mean about biblical matters. Because I find among us that sometimes we can stand strong on political matters, but we're weak on spiritual matters. Mature man is one who is, is strong, right? Someone who's, who's manly is someone who you find safety in, right? You know that really strong dude, right? You want to hang out with him, right? You're like, he's a man's man. He's not afraid of anything. He's like David. He's going to rip the lions and the bears apart, right? That's who you want to be around. Well, a spiritually mature man is the same. There's safety and security. And there's strength. Now, of course, we're not talking about a gender here. We're talking about men and women who are spiritually mature. Who stand strong and stable. This is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Or in Colossae, excuse me. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the aim of this. Mature in Christ. A characteristic of a maturing church is a church that is stable, strong, and and steadfast. Notice here another characteristic here in verse 13. The aim and goal of, of church growth should be to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
Paul strings together a bunch of words there, doesn't he? To the measure of the stature. Right? He, he's got the ruler out. And he's measuring the stature of Christ. Now, now in our minds, he, he's using some wordplay to put an image in our mind, right? Of a strong man standing, and he's measuring him, and he's saying, look how strong he is. Now, of course, he's not speaking literally about Jesus' external appearance. But he's, he's speaking here about the glory of Christ and his righteousness and holiness. Uh, this is, of course, what he's talked about throughout the book of Ephesians, about the fullness of Christ. Remember, turn with me just very briefly back to uh, chapter 3 in verse 19. I remember Paul's prayer. He, he was praying for the congregation. He wanted things to happen. Verse 19 of chapter 3 writes, I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, the fullness of God is represented in the fullness of Christ. In other words, we could summarize it this way. The aim of church growth is Christ-likeness. The aim of our individual spiritual growth and our corporate growth together is to be like Christ. To reflect His character in our lives. Now, brothers and sisters, this is why I want to commend to you the regular reading of the Gospels. The regular reading of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that you can know, hey, what's Jesus like? You don't have to pontificate. You don't have to think the question. You just go there, you read, and you're like, oh. So that's who, that's who Jesus is like. More than that, get yourself around some spiritually mature men and women who reflect Christ. You remember that's what Paul's model of ministry was. Follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's ministry model was, as I seek to reflect Christ in my life, so as you follow me, you will begin to reflect Christ in your life. That's the model for the local church, brothers and sisters. That as we grow spiritually mature, it begins to have an effect on those around us. It encourages us. It exhorts us. It holds us accountable. Uh, we have something to aim at. Of course, we've all heard the illustration. If you don't uh, have a target, if you don't aim at a target, well, then you hit your target, right? If you don't have a target, if, if you're not aiming at anything, then of course you're going you're gonna to get what you want. Brothers and sisters, the aim of the local church isn't just what we want it to be. The aim of the local church is, is Christ-likeness. What we want to see in our lives is more and more of Jesus showing up. Friends, do we see that? That as Christians, we are to grow to be like Christ. As we think about this, are you growing? Are you growing to be spiritually mature? Friend, as I said earlier, it is an anomaly to see a Christian not growing. Something is wrong. It is not normal or normative to see Christians sort of flatlined. No, as Christians, we are to grow in the knowledge of God, in the unity of the faith, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of Christ. And as a church, we are to grow spiritually. 
If we keep swimming in the shallow end, brothers and sisters, what will happen is, is we're going to drown when the, when the winds blow us into the deep end. Richard Koken, a pastor in London, England, writes this, any church that never changes is either, either perfect, which he says is unlikely, or not listening to the Bible, which is likely. Any church, any churches rather, that are not listening repentantly to God's word will be constantly changing. Friends, this is why we commend ourselves to the regular preaching of God's word. This is why I tell you again and again, and I, and I know you think, I know you, you probably think that preacher's just paid to say that. But you will not grow. You will not be stable if you do not sit humbly under the regular preaching of God's word. That's not because I have something good to say or clever to say or innovative to say. It's not because Rod, you know, is the, is the next Billy Graham, uh, though we pray he is. Um, it, it's not because we, we're going to parade preachers in front of you who, you know, who need to be on the radio and on preaching circuits. No, it's because we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You won't have faith. If you don't regularly sit under the preaching of God's word, you won't have it. You're trying to follow Jesus your own way. Following Jesus means sitting regularly and humbly under God's word. Well, as we set out on the journey to biblical growth, let's have these three aims in mind. But we have to get on the journey. And we need to think about why we need to have these goals. We want to think about the purpose, right? So very briefly, we're going to think very briefly in verse 14, the purpose. What is the purpose of spiritual growth? Why, why, why should we have spiritual maturity in our aim? Why should we as a congregation even care about what I just talked about? Well, Paul says in verse 14, so that... We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Let me summarize it this way. So that you get to heaven. Let me be frank with you. We must have spiritual maturity as our aim if we hope to get to heaven. Now, I don't mean in any way to undermine the security and sufficiency of God's word. I don't mean in any way to, to say that God's elect do not persevere to the end. But I do mean to say that, that God is purposed that when he redeems a sinner, he makes them a saint. End of story. That's his plan. I will make you holy for I am holy. And so Paul here writes, so that, and, and of course the word means purpose, right? The, the why, so that we'll no longer be children. He describes, or rather discourages, spiritual immaturity. He discourages childness or childlikeness in the church. Of course, Paul here in verse 14 is contrasting that mature man that we thought about just a moment ago with the maturity, excuse me, maturity with immaturity. Paul's point here is that we're not to be spiritually immature. Spiritually immature. 
We're not to be like children. Well, well, how does a child act? Infants have needs, right? They have cares. That you can't just like leave an infant by itself, right? That bad things happen, right? I mean, you can't leave really any child alone, uh, for that matter, right? It seems like they got to get into their 30s before that. No, you know, no. Um, right? No, right? You just you can't leave kids alone. They have needs. They have cares. Of course, a child acts a certain way, right? Certain behavior. Of course, many of us can reflect back on how we behaved as children. How quick we were and rash we were. How we thought if something didn't happen that the sky was falling. My life is over because he won't talk to me. Do you know children are also quite draining, right? That's why the, the moms with the newborns look like they, you know, have been to hell and back, right? They, their eyes are, I mean, they look rough. It's draining to have kids, right? It's hard, right? And I know these grandparents, you all are like, man, send them kids home to their parents. They're exhausting. They, they take, they like, their, they suck the life out of you. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, children, immature Christians. Suck the life out of a church. They suck the life out of pastors. And out of shepherds. Have you ever met those Christians? The Christians who just seem to suck the vitality out of the life of the church. They never grow up. They think like children. They act like children. They're rash. They're quick to conclusions. They're thoughtless and impatient. And friend, I wonder, does that describe you? Are you immature in your thinking? Are you immature in your behavior? We heard that text earlier from our sister Stephanie, where she says, where the author of Hebrews says, y'all should be like eating meat, but you're all still... Drinking bottles. I mean, think about how silly that would look if we were to have a potluck dinner and all we had was bottles, right? That's not very attractive, is it? Well, I tell you, if we had a visitor that Sunday, they'd never come back. Those guys are weird. I bet you if we got Dr. Beef to throw down some uh, filet mignon, people would be coming back and back and back. When's the next potluck? Those people don't mess around with crockpots. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, it's the same way spiritually. Do you understand that people are not attracted to immaturity? Who wants to go hang out with a bunch of immature people? No, they want to hang around people who know where they're going and have a plan to get there. Who, who are stable and steadfast. Who are not driven by the, the winds of culture. And the fads of church growth. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Brothers and sisters do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking be mature. Well very briefly Paul describes here in verse 14. Spiritual immaturity. I've mentioned them throughout, but I'll, I'll just highlight them for you quickly. Look here in verse 14. 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by deceitfulness, or craftiness rather, and deceitful schemes. Spiritual immaturity is marked by an unstable faith tossed to and fro. It's marked by a lack of direction driven by every wind of doctrine. But let us ask, James writes, without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The image is clear in our mind, right? If we were to to get on a boat and we're in the midst of the, the ocean being tossed to and fro and the wind was driving us, we have no control, we have no direction, we are unstable, this ship is sinking And so it is those who are easily drawn away. Brothers and sisters, I've heard it and I've seen it even among us. Even among us. It's a warning to us. It's a purpose for us. Why we have to be in the word. Why we have to be sitting under the preaching of God's word. And good biblical teaching. Because when you leave this place, the world will blow you and toss you. And who knows where you'll end up. A spiritually immature person is one who's easily drawn away. Notice Paul continues. He says, by human cunning. The word Paul uses here literally means playing dice. What we would say, playing with loaded dice. By human cunning. Teaching that masquerades as the truth, but undermines the gospel. Friends, it is no wonder Paul would write that the devil masquerades himself as an angel of light. You you know... False teaching is so close to the truth that if you didn't get the Bible out, the microscope of God's word, you wouldn't see the difference. False teaching is not in your face, okay? It's slow and subtle. It whispers at you. Moses warned the Israelites. When they were to go into the promised land, he warned them, he said, you better be careful that you are not drawn away, that your eyes and hearts are not drawn away. That can happen to us. The author of Hebrews warns, warns us in this way, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have no benefit. To those devoted to them. Friends, if you flirt with false teaching, false teaching will win. You understand, when you play with loaded dice, who wins, right? You, you don't win, <laughs> okay? There's a point. It's the person that has the loaded dice that wins. And Paul is saying, if you mess around with false teaching, if you're spiritually immature, you will be duped. The house always wins, Paul says. And your soul will walk away empty. Brothers and sisters, false teachers do not play by the rules. They are dirty in their practices. They are cheats. So we must be grounded in the truth. 
Oh, we've said it often, right? Those who, you know, study counterfeiting, they don't study counterfeit bills. They study what's real and true and right. That's how they can spot the fake because they know what the real thing is. And brothers and sisters, that is true for us today. Also, we see here in verse 14 that that spiritually immature are those who are easily manipulated by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul uses the same word that that Moses used in Genesis 3, describing the devil as a schemer. He'll use the same word in Ephesians 6.10 to say that the devil prowls around scheming. He's a schemer. He wants to take you away. False teaching aims at one thing very clearly, and that is our sinful desires. This is why the prosperity gospel is so popular and why you can so easily be taken into it. This is why God and country can be so popular and you can be taken into it. This is why you think, you thinking that if America flourishes, that you'll be better. Friend, that is a dangerous thinking. We hope and pray for our country. We pray regularly for our leaders. But if you connect your happiness to the flourishing of this place, you've got your citizenship grounded in the wrong place. So often, we can be duped, subtly and surely. Do you see it, though, as your responsibility as members of the church to have this purpose, to pursue it, And as a congregation, we want to have this sort of clear biblical goal in mind. We want to see the goal is spiritual maturity. We want to see that the purpose of our gatherings is to protect us from false teaching and to warn us from spiritual immaturity, to, to warn our own hearts that if we don't watch it, we too will be like children drawn away. Well, as we continue our journey along in our next step, we see finally that we are to have the right means forward. How do we grow spiritually? How do we grow spiritually? I've summarized it in two words. Word, work. Word, work. If you commit that to memory, that will suffice in your mind to have the means to spiritual growth. Word, work. Work. Paul, look in verse 15 how he outlines these two ideas. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, you heard it twice there. The body grows, right? Well, sandwiched around, we are to grow. He gives us two means to spiritual maturity. The word and work. The word of God being spoken by the people of God and the work of serving others. These are not themes that have been foreign to us as we've studied throughout. That we are to grow in spiritual speech. Look what he says in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth. Speak the truth, he says. 
Well, the truth is a reference back to the gospel. Speak the truth about the gospel and about Jesus. This isn't rocket science, he says. All you need to do to spiritually grow is to have on your lips, in your mind, in heart, in your mouth, the words of Christ. The truth. The truth. See, that's what we're doing. See, we, we live in a world of lies. And what we need to hear is the truth. The enemy is deceiving us every day. If you eat this, drink this, put this into your life, you'll be happy. A lie. A lie. A lie. If I only won the lottery, I would be happy. A lie. The truth of God's word reveals that. And we, we hold them up and we're like, oh, okay. Afflicted saints to Christ draw near. Uh, that hymn can't be sung in a prosperity gospel church. It just can't be. Because there's no place for affliction in the life of a Christian. But if you were to open your Bibles and read 1 Peter, affliction is very much a part of the Christian life. Trials and suffering are very much what it means to follow Jesus. What more than Jesus mean when he said, take up your cross and die? Well, he kind of meant that. And so we want to grow in spiritual speech. Paul would commend the church in Colossae, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, admonishing one another and teaching with the word. And so we want to be about the word. I'm all for a private, individual, devotion time with Jesus. That's awesome stuff, man. That's, you need to be doing that. But you're not commanded in Scripture to do that. Where you are commanded in Scripture is to use your mouth to encourage others with Scripture. Admonish one another in teaching with the words of Christ. And so we want our mouths to be informed. We want our lips to be informed. We want to be informing others with the words of Christ. Second mean growing in service. Now, Paul returns this metaphor of the body. And, and I know it looks funky and weird. And it's like, okay, what is he saying here? Let's just unknot this knot really quick. Let's untie it really quick and we'll be done. Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, it, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, now clearly, as you read that, you can see the result is a grown church, right? Well, how does a church grow? Well, notice here you have to have joints that hold the body parts together. The body parts are the members. The joints are the, are the ministers, the ministers have been given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so the ligaments that join the members together to get them working, right? Like, you can't move without your, without your ligaments, right? You understand that, right? You could just like, you could maybe like try to throw yourself at something. But your arms are not going to move. Your fingers aren't going to move. Nothing's going to move without those little tiny ligaments. And of course, without muscles. But Paul's point here is, is that, that as the ministers work to equip the saints, the, the, the saints have to do something, right? 
the ligaments can be doing all the work, but if, if the body parts don't move and function, then it's pointless. Notice this phrase he has here. When each part of the body is working properly. Well, what does Paul mean there? He means that when the members are doing ministry, the church grows. You could say it negatively. When the members are not doing ministry, the church doesn't grow. Doesn't happen. No more than if your ligaments and bones don't move when you ask them to move, will they move? And so as Christians, we are to grow in spiritual service to one another. Brothers and sisters, do you see it as your personal responsibility to care for the spiritual maturity of this church? Let me say that again. It is your responsibility, not the preacher or the elders or the deacons or the Sunday school team or whoever you think it is in your mind. It's, if you're a member of this church, it's your responsibility. This is a congregational church. If you don't want that responsibility, join a Presbyterian church. Seriously. But if you rightly understand the scripture teaches that members are to be ministers and do ministry, then brothers and sisters, we've got to get in action. And you won't get in action until you recognize that one day you're going to stand before Jesus and his question for you is how did you help my church grow? What part did you play in serving the body of Christ? What ways did you minister to the lives of saints? He's not going to ask you how much you gave. He's not going to ask how many Sundays you attended or, or all these other things. All are important. But did you minister? Finally here, I want to point out one thing. If we have the right means, but we don't have love, It's without. The lack of love in the church undermines all the energy that goes into spiritual growth. There's a lot of energized churches out there, but ones that don't have love. Brothers and sisters, let that not be said about us. In all the energy we have into preaching, the preachers have to preach in love. If your point is just to correct others and just kind of point out their problems, and it's not issued from love, just keep your mouth shut because you're not really building anybody up but yourself. The manner in which we go about these means must be in love. As Paul writes, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm just a noisy symbol. I'm just making a bunch of noise. Ineffective. Brothers, let us genuinely love one another. We may grow old. Our bodies may decay, but as Christians, we continue to grow in vitality and strength. Paul told the church in Corinth that though my outer self is wasting away, my inner self is being renewed day by day. Friend, what an encouragement in the face of this frail world. We are being built up for another world. We are being prepared each Lord's Day and throughout the week as we do this work for a spiritual world, an eternal world. 
That means that what goes on here has eternal significance for that day. We are preparing one another for eternity with Christ. And so let us set out on the right course. Let's have the right aim in mind. Let us go about it with the right purpose. And let us use God's means to grow his church for his glory and our good in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.